0: Welcome, everybody, again to Marin Covenant Church. It is the Advent season, and it's the fourth Sunday of Advent. And in the church world, we have a way in which we pre- prepare for Christmas, and that's Advent, right? Every Sunday, we gather and we light a candle, and we kind of do this slow, on-ramp, preparing uh, for Jesus to come. So we did the, the, the love candle and the hope candle, the joy candle. And then this, uh, this morning, we're look at the peace candle that Jesus comes and gives us peace, which the day before Christmas Eve, man, I need it. I don't know about you. Well, that's kind of what we do as a church. Those are the churchy things that we do. But I think in all of our families, we also do things that help our families feel like Christmas. In our family, we uh, bake sugar cookies. That's one of the things that we do. Um, We watch Christmas movies. I don't know. Do you guys watch Christmas movies to kind of gear up for Christmas? Um, If you had to, like, what what are some of your favorite Christmas movies? Like, it's not Christmas until I've seen this movie. What are some of them? White Christmas. Christmas story. I hear my son chiming in, Die Hard. Die Hard, please. Well, okay, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Okay, let's do a quick little vote. Raise your hand if you think Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Okay. So I'm, I'm in that boat too, except what's wild is I watch Die Hard on TV forever and ever, and now my son's in middle school. I'm like, we're going to watch Die Hard for Christmas. Turns out the real version has the F word, pretty prominently displayed throughout the movie. So I'm just going to put that as a cautionary table. But yeah, we have all sorts of Christmas movies, right? There's The Elf and Die Hard and White Christmas, um, a whole bunch of them, Home Alone. Well, this morning, I want to share with you a clip um, from, I think, one of the most powerful Christmas movies. It's not a traditional Christmas movie, and you're going to watch this, and you're going to be like, where are the elves? Um, but if you just bear with me, kind of just try to lean in a little bit, you're going to see that this might be the most powerful Christmas movie of all time. Enjoy. Have you seen that Christmas movie? Do you know what movie that is? Lord of the Flies. I heard that it's actually from a book that a lot of people read when they were younger. I, I've just seen the movie. <laughs> but if you're not familiar with the story, this is the basic gist. There's these kids, and they get shipwrecked on this island, and they're, they're from a military school. And they have order, and they have discipline. There's structure. There's a way in which they're going to protect each other. There's a way in which they're going to care for each other. And, um, but sure enough, because we're humans human nature begins to take over. And what started out as this orderly structure, this orderly tribe of kids, slowly just descended into total death and destruction. They end up killing a kid. They're trying to kill Ralph there. And, um, I mean, it just descends into wild, wild, heartbreaking mayhem. And the reason why it's a Christmas movie is because The whole Christian story is the Lord of the Flies. The whole Christian story is at one point God created humanity to live in perfect communion with Him and with each other. But because of our rebellious nature, because of our humanity, because of the deepest parts of the things inside of us, we don't know how to do that well. And we turn on each other. We crush each other. We cause death and destruction everywhere. The powerful oppress the weak, and the weak just gets uh, crushed all along. And that is the world in which we live in. It's the world in which the prophet Isaiah leans into and says, someday there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come and restore hope. Luke, when he talks about the coming of Jesus, it's in the context of this Roman oppression. And here in 2018 in Marin County, we recognize that we live in a context that is just broken and full of chaos and death and destruction, I mean, the social fabric of our world is crumbling apart. And if we can just, like, stop self-medicating long enough, if we can turn off our phones just long enough, we know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. The epidemic rates of loneliness and depression and anxiety are overwhelming. And we, and we, we, don't, we know how to present in public, but internally, Lord of the Flies is what's happening inside of almost every person, especially every young person. And it's in that context— that Jesus comes. And I love this clip because all this chaos happens. It's out of control. And then, then the, the officer shows up and Ralph falls, falls to his feet and he looks up and he realizes, oh, the person in charge has shown up. And right, he becomes this scared boy and he, become, you know, he begins to weep. And all those wild kids who had thought that they were awesome and rulers of the universe all of a sudden remember, oh, we're just 10-year-olds too. And they begin to weep. And it's just an incredible, powerful moment. And I think that is exactly the, the heart that God has for us and for his people. And I just want to share with you this morning out of Isaiah chapter 9. This is the prophet Isaiah writing. They're in Babylon. They're in captivity. They've only known captivity and death and destruction. And it is in that context that he gives us this hope. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has come. Uh, The people are walking in darkness. That's our context. But there's this light emerging. It says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. Can you imagine if you only knew oppression, if you only knew war, if you only knew loss? Someday, I love it, those garments will be rolled up and thrown in the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That is the heart of God. And for us in this Christmas season, no matter what sort of chaos and death and destruction is happening in and around us, it seems like the holidays, instead of making it more beautiful, right, it just reveals how things are broken sometimes. And we long for peace. But the trick is that peace isn't just a gift. That peace is a byproduct. If you don't hear anything else this morning, this is the basic gist, that the peace of Christ, the thing we long for, the thing we need, can never be separated from Christ himself. And if we want peace to rule in our lives, then Christ has to rule in our lives. If we want peace to rule in our lives, then Christ has to rule in our lives. And we've been talking about this Advent season that Jesus reveals. He reveals these things about God. And one of the things that he reveals is he reveals God's authority. In that that passage Isaiah, Isaiah says, the Son, there's going to be the Son, the Messiah, and he's going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And we all want to get to the end and go, Prince of Peace, we need that. May the Prince of Peace come. But it begins with recognizing that Jesus is actually mighty God. He is the authority. He is the power. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the person that all of humanity will kneel to in one day. And I always think, why is the whole world not Christian? I mean, being a Christian is the most incredible thing. It's about loving one another. Um, If you're a Christian, you care for the poor, the marginalized. It makes you a better citizen and human. It's so great. Why isn't the whole world Christian? And the reality is, is because of this beginning point. The whole world aren't Christians because we are prideful and rebellious people. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And if the Christian story and the Christian narrative begins with us having to bow before Jesus, recognizing he is the authority, boy, that is so hard to do. It's funny, we all, I think, want anarchy in our own lives, but we want everybody else to play by the rules. But if all of us had anarchy, it would be awful. And everywhere that's ever been tried has been awful. And so if we want peace, it begins with this, that Jesus is God's authority, and what's funny, a good authority actually makes the world incredible. This is a soccer. I know some of you like soccer. I don't understand it. It's a whole 90 minutes or 60 minutes and no one scores. And it's a lot of running around. Um, hockey, I can almost get my hand, head behind, you know, because you throw down the mitts and you fight. And, um, and then what's funny about hockey is you throw it off your mitts and you fight. And then you fall to the ground and everyone goes, oh, it's over. And then that's the end. Right. But soccer is awesome. They fall down all the time. No one even touches them. They fall and they like hurt their knees. And, and it's really dramatic. But for any competitive sport, for anything that's awesome like that, there needs to be a referee. Like everyone says, here's the rules. But without a, a point person, without someone who's separate from the game, without the authority, it always devolves into total chaos. And the referee in soccer, I love this. Is The one thing I do love about soccer is they get the red card. Like How rad if we had the red card in life and we could just be like, boop, you, gone. right? You, causing death and destruction, boop, you're out of here. Like That is my kind of authority, right? And Jesus is. Jesus is the good authority. He's the good king. He's the mighty king. He comes and he sets out the parameters, the rules, the way in which we're supposed to live. He's the referee. He's the one that is calling the shots. And if we want to move towards peace, we need to first recognize that he is mighty God and he reveals God's authority. Now, the second thing, it's actually first, it says, unto us a son is given and he'll be called mighty counselor. Uh, uh, everla- wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, but I inverse those for the sermon. So th- we're going to go backwards and look at the Wonderful Counselor. Oh, I forgot to read a passage of Scripture, sorry. That Jesus um, reveals his, his authority, and what's incredible is so often we think of um, Talladega Nights, right? And the, the poor little, little baby Jesus, we pray our, our prayers, the seven pound, two ounce, little chubby cheek baby Jesus, right? And we see all the Christmas cards, and we, and we have like this really approachable thing about Jesus, which is great on one hand. But Jesus is God. And I love the way the Apostle Paul paints this picture of who Jesus is. He says this, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, He's the beginning and firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I love what a beautiful picture of Jesus' authority, of Jesus' supremacy. He is above all things and all things he is supreme. And yet he leverages his power, he uses his authority to make space for us, just these rebellious dirt balls to come and know him. So that's the first thing. The second thing is is that Jesus reveals God's path. He is a wonderful counselor. And I don't know if you've ever been to counseling or or done any sort of that, that, that work, which I highly recommend. It's incredible to sit down with somebody and to spill your guts and have an outside person who doesn't have all of your emotional baggage and issues and go, whoa, are you sure you wanted to say that out loud? Sorry, this is just my therapy. You have your own deal, right? And you're working it out. But what does the counselor do? A counselor sits back and they, they offer perspective. They, they know where you're trying to get to and they, they walk along with you to get there, right? They offer empathy. They offer wisdom. They offer discernment that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. And when I think of it, I, I think of the best picture to understand this is, is going on a backpacking trip. I don't know if you like hiking or if you've ever been backpacking, but backpacking is the most incredible thing. There's a beautiful mountain in front of you, and you want to hike up it. And you don't just—if you just started walking straight to this mountain, you're going to hit a dead end. You're going to struggle. You're going to—you're going to have problems all along the way. But thankfully, there's been people before us who have marked out this well-worn path. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this: that we fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who carved out this path, and we walk along it. We get from point A to point B. The Christian story, the Christian path is a well-marked out path. And Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He comes alongside of us and he gives us wisdom. He gives us discernment. He gives us energy. He gives us encouragement to get from point A to point B. And a few years ago, I mean, I love backpacking so much. And so I incorporated as part of my job, I would take students backpacking whenever I could because that was my job. And plus I got to do this thing that I loved. And I felt like, oh, this is my chance. I get to be the wonderful counselor, right? I have a group of high school kids and I'm going to get them from point A to point B. And I loved it. I love taking kids who, you know, who have calluses on their thumbs from all their Xbox playing, and they get to see the sunrise. And you're like, whoa, this is incredible. And you're moving them along. And you get to encourage them, and, get to, and they walk along this path. And you see their eyes open in a whole new way. And, and as the wonderful counselor, right, I set up the path. I made sure there was food. I would encourage along the way. Well, one time I was not a wonderful counselor. I was eh, maybe average, maybe below average counselor. But it really wasn't my fault. Um, I took a kid, his name was James, and he's never been backpacking before. I don't even think he's been outside before. Um, But I I talked him into it, and I think his mom just wanted to get him out of the house. And so were we're at the trailhead, and we start getting all of our stuff, and he has, like, his dad's, like, you know, 1942, World War II era, you know, metal backpack, and he has these, like, combat boots, and he has bologna sandwiches stuffed in there. And I'm like, oh, geez. But you know what? I'm a wonderful counselor. We're going to go backpacking. We're going to explore God's beautiful creation. It's going to be great. Well, I knew we were in trouble when one mile and he's like, I hate this. He's walking like, I hate this. Why did you make me do this? But I'm a wonderful counselor. I'm like, James, it's going to be OK. Look how beautiful it is. Let's have some water. Let's keep walking one foot in front of the other. We're having a great time. Come on, look how great it is. Well, he starts walking slower and slower, and the group's getting farther and farther away. And, and my, my joy, my wonderful counselorness, you know, kind of becomes a little bit more like Mean Dad. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And, uh, but I kept it together on the first day. But the second day is when the wheels really came off. We're like, we're a couple miles into the hike. We're now seven miles away from our car. Like there's no way, like there's no cell coverage. We're the farthest point possible from our car. And James falls down on the ground facing the dirt with his backpack on, crying. I know. See, I wish I was more like you. I stood over him, and I'm like, is this really happening right now? I'm like, James, come on, man. You can do it. Stand up. Let's go. We got places to go. The whole group's an hour in front of us. He's like, I'm not going to move. I'm going to die here. I'm like, oh, man. Listen, dude, you're not going to die here. And he's like, and like, it's like 30 minutes of him just crying and screaming, and I'm like, no more wonderful counselor. I'm just like, this is a dumpster fire. How, what is going to happen? And finally, in all of my best pastoral chops, I just told him, I said, James, there is no minivan that's going to come rolling up and giving you a, a big gulp and tell you, give you a drive home. You are stuck here. You are going to die here. Unless you stand up and put one foot in front of the other for seven miles. He's like crying and crying. I'm like, why am I doing this job? This thing that I love doing is ruined. And so I said, all right, James, I'll stand here, and I'll wait. At some point, you're going to be done crying. And then we'll start walking, which is my best pastoral chops in my late 20s. I've come a long way. And sure enough, he picked himself up, and he got to the end, and that was his end of his youth group career and his backpacking career, whatever. (laughs) But I think a lot of times when we think of Jesus as a wonderful counselor, I think that's what we imagine. We think Jesus, right, he's our mighty God. He's our protector. And he sets out the rules. And he sets out how things should be. He's our counselor. He gives us help. He stands over us. He encourages us. He shows us the path. But sometimes we're just, we're like James. We're on the ground and we're crying. And we're like, I can't do it. And we think Jesus is just like, okay. I'll stand here until you're done crying. You can pick yourself up and we'll keep on the path. But what I love about Jesus is that he's not just a mighty God. He's not just wonderful counselor. He's everlasting father. And it's a whole different ballgame when you go backpacking with a bunch of kids and when you go backpacking with your kid. Right? If you go to a choir concert and you see all the kids singing, you don't see all the kids singing. You see your kids singing. When you go to a basketball game, you see all the kids playing basketball. You don't see all the kids playing basketball. You see your kid playing basketball. In the same way, God sees us individually. A few years later, I went backpacking again with a group of kids, and this time I brought uh, my, my hero, um, the, the most incredible man ever, at least the way that I see him. You would experience him maybe different if you're his family, but George Huff, you know him. He's just this superman, superman. <laughs> well, I brought a bunch of kids. George came, but George also came with his daughter and his daughter's friends. And here we are backpacking. It was a totally different ballgame because when I'm, I'm the wonderful counselor, right? I create this thing. I have the food, point A to point B along. Here we go. We got places to go, time to keep, and away we go. And I see the whole group and I'm getting there. Well, an hour in, George's like, hey, let's stop up here and have some trail mix. I'm like, George, you're killing me. It's been an hour. We haven't even done anything. No one's tired. Let's keep going. He's like, no, it's okay, Ben. Let's have some trail mix. And George just sits down by the trail opens up his trail mix and like little chickens, his daughter and his daughter's friend, they all come sitting by him, they're eating trail mix. And I'm like fuming, I'm like, we got places to go. All the kids, pretty soon all the kids are gathered around George and he's just eating, telling stories and talking about books he's read and he's, you know, the kids don't even care, there's trail mix and it's a break. Finally like, hey man, we gotta go. He's like, okay, we go. So we start, we pick up our stuff, we start walking an hour later. Hour later he's like, hey, let's stop over here and uh, let's get some, let's get, let's get a drink of water. And I'm like, killing me. But okay, because it's George, how am I gonna say no to George? So we sit down, we have some water, and as he unpacks his pack, um, as he unpacks his pack, what, what happens is he realizes that, um, I didn't realize this at the time, but he started taking stuff from his daughter's pack and he put it in his pack. And he took stuff from his daughter's friend's pack and put it into his pack. And one of the other kids, he took stuff from their pack and he put it into his pack. And before I realized it, George's pack was like a Sherpa. It was like three times bigger than it should have been. Everything was strapped onto it. I think his daughter and his daughter's friends had a sleeping bag and that was it. And again, we start moving on because Jesus not only reveals um, God's path, but he reveals God's heart. Because what George saw was his actual daughter. I saw the group but George saw his daughter, and he knew because he was his, his daughter's father, he knew exactly what she was capable of. He knew her tells. He knew when she was starting to get tired. He knew when she, what she could handle and what she couldn't handle. And so before she even knew it, he knew how to stop. Before she even got too exhausted, he knew to walk next to her and to take the things out of her bag and to put it into his. And that is what's so incredible about the Christian story. Because Jesus is mighty God— He's wonderful counselor, but He's everlasting Father. The protection that God offers, the care that God offers isn't to the whole world. It isn't, I love you all. It's, I love you personally and specifically. All of us are carrying these backpacks, and Jesus walks somehow because He's God, but He walks with us individually, and He offers us protection and care, taking things out of our bag and putting them on His This is a really famous passage of Scripture, and I just think it's so beautiful. It's Matthew chapter 11. It says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't that just sound so good? Come to me all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But you know what's interesting? What's hidden in here is it's to take on my yoke. Like, Jesus just slips it in. Jesus has a path for us to walk. Jesus has a yoke for us to carry. Jesus doesn't give up His authority. He doesn't give up His direction. He still has a way in which He wants us to live, a, a, a way in which we're supposed to engage Him. But the, if we do it correctly, that what we equal is rest— for our souls, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love George, and I want to be a dad like him. My son, I'm, I'm growing. Sometimes I, I I crush him when we go backpacking, but I'm growing. But Jesus doesn't have to grow. How cool is that? So, if Jesus, He's our mighty God, He's our wonderful Counselor. her everlasting father. And then the result is that he's the prince of peace. And Jesus actually reveals peace. The things that we long for most at Christmas is peace. Lord, our world is so broken. It is so troubled. There's so much death and destruction everywhere. Would you just come and bring peace? And I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a, in a blizzard or a snowstorm, I have twice because I live in California and it like never snows here. But I do remember twice in my whole life um, being caught in one. One, it was up in Tahoe, and we were at this cabin out in Zephyr Cove. And uh, we drove in, and it was great, and then it started snowing, and then it kept snowing, and it kept snowing. And like, you know the kind of snow where like it goes up the windows, and you're like, oh, I guess we're going to be here a while. And what's incredible, what's incredible about a blizzard is If you're outside in a blizzard with shorts and a T-shirt, you are not having any fun. It is the worst. In fact, you're probably going to die. If you're outside and you have all sweet, swanky, North Face gear, it's pretty fun for like an hour. But if you get stuck out there, you're going to die. The world is terrifying and terrible. But what's incredible is in the same blizzard, if you're in a home, it's awesome. Being stuck in a blizzard in a home where there's a fire going and you have music playing, you're drinking hot cocoa and you're playing cards and you're like, oh, I hope I get snowed in. I don't have to go to work on Monday. This will be great. Because there's protection and there's care and there's peace. So the blizzard is real. That is the world in which we live in. What God is inviting us, followers of Christ, people who are figuring out what it means to know Christ, He's inviting us into the home, into His care Where we can experience his peace. There's this really famous psalm, it's Psalm 23, and it it just sums up this entire picture beautifully. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He's our protector, He's our authority. He is the shepherd, and with His staff, He protects us, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters and refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me and your rod and their staff, they comfort me. He offers protection as the mighty God. He offers care as the wonderful counselor. But then he goes on and says this, but you have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will flow over me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love this in verse five. You will anoint my head with oil. It's so specific. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, if you've been to a church service or had an opportunity to someone come and pray for you and anoint you with oil. It's this really intimate moment. Anointing with oil isn't like someone standing up here with like a big, you know, super soaker full of oil and goes, Whoa! you're all anointed. Like, that's not how it works. It's this very specific, intimate encounter. Because the way that God longs for us to be is not to see Him just as a distant authority, not just as a counselor to offer us care, but someone who sees us, who anoints us, who looks at us square in the eyes and wants to take things out of our backpack and put them onto His, who anoints us with oil so that our cup overflows." I want to invite up Adrian Gretchman. When I was a kid, we would go on these road trips as a family, and we listened to books on tape and the radio and NPR. And, and there was a story on NPR that, um, that was so shaping uh, that for our family that we actually as a family were like, this, we want to be this as a family. And uh, it's a story uh, that takes place in Minnesota. And basically what it is is in, in these towns in Minnesota, there'd be kids that lived out in the farmlands, and then they would go into town for school. But if a blizzard came, they weren't able to get from their home all the, I mean, from the school all the way out to their home. And so they would, there would be people in the town that would adopt kids, and they would be their storm kids. That would be their storm house and be a place for them to find refuge. Why don't you tell us the story, Adrian?
1: My storm home was the Krugers. They were an old couple that lived in a little green cottage down by the lake. I used to go by there and wonder about my storm home and the people who lived there. Everything was so neat and delicate. Along the shoreline, there was a rock garden and terraces with pansies and petunias. Around the statue of the Blessed Virgin were little marigolds growing up around her feet. There was a bird bath and there were trellises where the ivy climbed up in neat straight rows and there were two cast iron deer grazing peacefully in the backyard. It was the kind of house that If you were a child and you were lost in a dark forest and you came upon it in a clearing, you knew that there would be a kindly old couple there who would take you in and rescue you. You were a lucky child who had found your way into a story with a happy ending. The storm home was very big in my imagination. There were times when I would walk by that house and I would wanna go up to the door and introduce myself saying, I'm the kid that if there's a storm, I'm going to come and stay with you. Now, my family would have been shocked to think that our storm house was a Catholic home. We Protestants were suspicious of Catholics. But it didn't matter to me because I kind of felt like they had chosen me special. They had come down to the school and they had said, him. We want him. We want that skinny kid. If there's a storm, we want him to come and stay with us. And, you know, I dreamed of going to see them. Blizzards aren't the only troubles that we experience in our lives. And I dreamed that when I'd come to the door, Mrs. Kruger would say, Ah, it's you. I knew you would come. Why don't you get out of those wet clothes and come into the kitchen and get yourself a cup of hot chocolate and an oatmeal cookie? And then we'd sit down, and she would say, It's terrible outside, isn't it? And I would say, yes and she would say it's going to get worse isn't it and i would say yes and then she would go to the foot of the stairs and she would look up and say carl come down and see who's in the kitchen and he would say is it our storm child and she would say yes he's sitting right here in the flesh big as life i never did go there But I always thought I could if things got unbearable. I guess the reason I didn't go is because all of my troubles were bearable troubles. And I'm certain they were more bearable because I always knew the Krugers were there for me in case of a storm. When things got bad, I always thought to myself, there's always the Krugers, my storm home.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Adrian. Gosh, isn't that an incredible story? I mean, and that really is the Christmas story that Jesus is our storm home. Jesus actually picked you. He's waiting for you, waiting for me to not try to white-knuckle what we think we can handle because it's not unbearable, but just to own that this is an awful blizzard and to come inside And individually, Jesus gets to be that for us. Corporately, we, as the body of Christ, get to be that for others. What an incredible thing, right? If we as the church could own that we are the storm home and anyone with any trouble, with any unbearable thing could walk through the doors of our house and we would see them, it'd be like, yes, we've been waiting for you, our storm kid, to come and be a part of God's family. And that's the picture that God invites us to. That's what the Christmas story is about, that in the midst of all of the death, of all of the destruction, of all of the Lord of the Flies, of oppression, of being an Occupy, of being a refugee, of being in a blizzard, whatever that personal thing is, it's at that moment that Jesus comes. And he says, comes as our mighty God, our wonderful counselor, our everlasting father, and our prince of peace. At the end, of, in the beginning of Luke, he tells a story like this, right? You know this passage. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared to the angels saying, praise, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on whom his favor rests. And that's the tension. That is the balance that we can't have the peace of Christ unless Christ rules in us, right? The peace of Christ can never be separated from Christ himself. And if we want the peace of Christ to rule in our lives, then Christ must rule in our lives. The peace comes after we acknowledge all glory be to Jesus. Now, it's the last Sunday of Advent before uh, tomorrow night's Christmas Eve service. And in the Advent lighting, we remind ourselves that Jesus comes and he reveals love. He reveals hope. He reveals joy. And this morning we celebrate that Jesus reveals peace. And it's the coming of Jesus as the Prince of Peace where he gives rest for our souls. And may we, as the people of God, be people who are characterized by the peace of Christ. May we experience that more and more this Christmas season. And even more, may we extend that to others.